Good evening. The CIA says the Saudi crown prince ordered the killing of a dissident journalist while a U.S. bombing mission in Syria reportedly kills 17. New York City schools chancellor Richard Carranza resigns and he's being followed by the city's first black chancellor. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, February 26th, 2021. The Biden administration defended the U.S. military airstrikes in Syria as legal and appropriate Friday, saying they took out facilities that housed valuable capabilities used by Iranian-backed militia groups to attack American and allied forces in Iraq. John Kirby, the Pentagon's chief spokesperson, said members of Congress were notified. Military forces conducted an airstrike against infrastructure utilized by Iranian-backed militant groups in eastern Syria. The strike was authorized in response to recent attacks against American and coalition personnel in Iraq and to ongoing threats to those personnel. Two F-15E strike eagles dropped seven precision-guided munitions, totally destroying nine facilities and partially destroying two facilities, making them functionally destroyed. The structures were located at the Abu Kamal Terrorist Entry Control Point located near the Syria-Iraq border on the Syrian side. This location is known to facilitate uh, Iranian-aligned militia group activity. We have preliminary details about casualties on site, but I won't be able to discuss additional details at this time because our battle damage assessment is ongoing. This response was conducted together with diplomatic measures, including consultation with coalition partners. The department notified congressional leadership before the strikes. Administration officials have been briefing at the member and staff level today. And that's John Kirby. He's a spokesperson for the Department of Defense. Several leading Congress members and President Joe Biden's own party denounced the strikes. Republicans generally supporting Biden with progressive Democrats questioning the use of force without congressional approval. Government officials chimed in that Biden used his constitutional authority to defend U.S. personnel. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. We had on multiple occasions in the last 10 days or so attacks on our people, our position, our interests that took lives and injured others. So we had both to respond to those attacks, but also to an ongoing threat that was very clear. And so we took uh, this action that I think was focused, proportionate, uh, but also effective in degrading some of the capacity that uh, the militia in question had to perpetrate new attacks, and also to be very clear, notably to Iran, that they cannot act with impunity against our people, our partners, our interests, and expect that that message was clearly received. Anthony Blinken is Secretary of State, but Code Pink's Medea Benjamin, who also hosts a program on WBAI, says Biden made a bad move. It's reckless, it's dangerous, and it's illegal, both according to U.S. law as well as international law. Other administrations, and now Biden included, have used the post-9-11 congressional authorization for the use of military force now, basically 20 years later, to keep authorizing or acting as if they have authorization for the use of military actions in countries 
where there has been no congressional authorization, and that's what's happening right now. It's against U.S. law. There is no imminent threat at all coming from these militia. Syria is a sovereign country. The U.S. has no right to attack. And let's also question why there are U.S. personnel in Syria. Trump said they were going to stay to guard the oil. They should not be there, just as they should not be in Iraq, especially after the Iraqi parliament last year voted overwhelmingly to have the U.S. troops leave. We thought the Biden administration was coming in to use diplomacy to get the U.S. back into the Iran nuclear deal to de-escalate the conflicts. And now we see a month into his administration that he has escalated the conflict and that he's making things worse. Do you think there's any connection between that strike and the release of the CIA report? I think there's more of a relationship between that strike and the negotiations on Iran, where some in the administration might think they were strengthening their hand in negotiations with Iran, but I think they would do just the opposite, which is strengthening the hardliners in Iran who say, forget the nuclear deal, why are we even negotiating with the United States? In terms of the release of the report, there could be a connection in that it does say to the Saudis who applaud the U.S. action in Syria, that wait a minute, we're not all that favorable to what Saudi Arabia is doing as well. And that's Medea Benjamin. She represents the anti-war group Code Pink. The CIA or intelligence briefing she was referring to concerns Jamal Khashoggi. We'll be getting to that in the next story. Iraqi militia say the strikes targeting the Hezbollah brigades hit an area along the border between Syria and Iraq. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said, I'm confident in the target that we went after. We know what we hit. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, a Britain-based group, said moments ago that 22 fighters from the Popular Mobilization Forces, an Iraqi umbrella group of mostly Shiite paramilitaries that includes the Hezbollah brigades, were killed. But the group confirmed only one of its fighters was killed. Syria condemned uh, condemned the U.S. strike, calling it a cowardly and systematic American aggression, warning that the attack will lead to consequences. And consequences were in the air for Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, known as uh, MBS to many people around the world. A U.S. intelligence assessment released today says bin Salman approved an operation to capture or kill murdered Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. The United States sanctioned some of those involved, but not the crown prince himself. Khashoggi, who wrote a column that criticized the Saudi monarchy, was killed and dismembered inside the Saudi Arabian embassy in Istanbul, Turkey, while his wife was waiting for him outside, but her husband was never seen again. The United States Office of the Director of National Intelligence said in the report, we assess that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman approved an operation in Istanbul, Turkey to capture or kill Saudi journalists Jamal Khashoggi. The executive director of the human rights organization known as CARE is Nihad Awe. Today's Awad, release sorry. of the intelligence, U.S. intelligence, that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is directly responsible for the murder and dismembering of Jamal Khashoggi. This report has been delayed for over two years. And we believe that the delaying of this release due to the Trump administration has caused delay in in, in bringing people uh, responsible for this murder and holding them accountable, the corruption that has existed in the previous administration and covering up for this high-profile crime that has shaken the world, 
is something that this administration should not tolerate, tolerate anymore. Nihar Awad is executive director of CARE. Before his death, Khashoggi helped found a pro-democracy group called Dawn. Its, rep- its spokesperson is Raed Jarar. The report, as we all saw, concludes that MBS approved the capture or killing of Khashoggi. It is a smoking gun for MBS's role in the killing. What we're asking for is we're asking for sanctions, the same kind of sanctions that were imposed on the other 17 Saudi officials who were implicated with the killing, have to be imposed on MBS himself. Sanctions that include freezing assets for MBS in the United States, but also includes a travel ban for MBS. We are very worried, concerned about reports in the media that the Biden administration is considering to exempt MBS from sanctions. And we will definitely be pressuring the administration to do its job and follow U.S. law. Right. Gerard is spokesperson for the pro-democracy group founded by Khashoggi named Dawn. The U.S. has sanctioned 72 Saudis they say were involved in the hit, but bin Salman is not one of them. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. As to accountability, this report speaks for itself. And the fact that we have provided the transparency necessary to shine a bright light on what happened through the assessment, not just of the media as important as you are, but the United States government is in and of itself significant action. And beyond that, for Mr. Khashoggi not to have been murdered totally in vain, we now have in place a new policy that applies not just to Saudi Arabia, but across the board. And that gives us, I think, a greater ability to deter the kinds of egregious actions that were taken against him and against other dissidents, opponents, and others speaking out, or their families going forward. And that, I hope, will be, in some small measure, an important legacy. Can the U.S. still do business with him? The relationship with Saudi Arabia is bigger than any one individual. The president engaged, as you know, with King Salman. I've spoken to my uh, counterpart, the foreign minister, and Secretary Austin has spoken to his counterpart, who happens to be Mohammed bin Salman. Blinken added the U.S. is out to ramp down the bloody war in Yemen, a fight that's involved the mass starvation of the Yemen population enforced by the Saudi military with U.S. backing. And the U.S. will limit some weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, only selling so-called defensive weapons. There's an ongoing review and there is a very important distinction between our commitment to not engage or not support offensive activities and operations in Yemen, including through the provision of offensive weapons and the legitimate needs of the King of Saudi Arabia in terms of its own uh, defense, something, as I said, uh, we remain committed to. So we're reviewing these arms sales and we're making sure that going forward, what we do provide goes to the defense of the kingdom, not its ability to prosecute offensive operations. As we go forward, we're going to do so in full consultation with Congress, something that we'd gotten away from in the past. So we're going to get back to regular order, not just with Saudi Arabia, but with any country with whom we um, were engaged and are selling arms to and providing security assistance to. That, I think, is very important. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken over at the Pentagon Department of Defense spokesperson Kirby says the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has already spoken with bin Salman and the U.S. military agrees Saudi Arabia can still use American supplied weapons for self-defense against its small neighbor to the south.
We addressed this when the secretary, when we offered a readout of the secretary's call with the, the crown prince. I'm not going to speak to the specifics of this report. That's outside the, the lanes of the Defense Department. Saudi Arabia remains a strategic partner in the region. We have to be courageous enough as friends to speak candidly and to make clear our concerns about the rule of law and about civil and human rights, even with friends and partners. I'll leave it to my State Department colleagues to speak to that. From, from a military perspective, as I've said many times, we take seriously our security commitments to Saudi Arabia with respect to their ability to defend themselves, and they do need to defend themselves, uh, particularly along that southern border. And it's important that we continue to be able to have frank and candid conversations about how that relationship should go forward. Again, I won't speak for the broader government on this, but uh, from a military-to-military perspective, we, we recognize our commitments, and, and we also respect our government's right and responsibility to make clear the broader context of the bilateral relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Department of Defense spokesperson John Kirby. President Trump had a close relationship with the Saudi monarchy, as did his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. The report was withheld by the White House when he was president until President Joe Biden took office. But WBAI host and Code Pink activist Medea Benjamin says although Biden is doing better than Trump, more needs to be done. Trump himself bragged about how he rehabilitated MBS on the world scene uh, after the Khashoggi murder, and Trump did everything he could to continue relations as normal with the Saudis after this. And so, of course, he didn't want the report to be released, and it took a new administration for that to happen. What's the heart of this report? The heart of this report is evidence that was out there in the public in different ways, but to have it come from the U.S. intelligence agencies, particularly from the CIA, is validating of all that other evidence. It wasn't a mystery what had happened. Uh, What is it about Saudi Arabia? And the other thing I wanted to get into was the 70 plus people who are being sanctioned by the U.S. Does that go far enough? Well, taking the last question first, it doesn't because it doesn't include MBS. And so we are calling for um, those sanctions to be against MBS, which would mean that he would not be allowed to travel here, uh, that his assets in the U.S. would be frozen. And we go further than that because MBS is the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. So if you have a nation that's being ruled by a murderer who's not only responsible for the brutal killing of a Washington Post journalist, but also for the killings of many, many people in a war in Yemen that he initiated, uh, then this points to larger issues about treating Saudi Arabia as the pariah state that candidate Biden says it was. Um, We are thankful that Biden has said that he's not going to be selling offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia, But what is the difference between offensive and defensive weapons? A number of Congress people initiated by Congressman Rokana are now asking the administration. But we are saying that there shouldn't be any weapons being sold to Saudi Arabia. There needs to be a lot more pushing on the part of human rights organizations now that this report is out to hold MBS and the Saudi state accountable. Medea Benjamin, she's the host of the WBAI program, Code Pink. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. 
Richard Carranza, the city's school chancellor who ignited fiery conversations about race and segregation and education and oversaw the seismic shift to remote learning throughout the coronavirus pandemic, will step down after a three-year tenure. He'll be replaced by Maisha Porter, who currently serves as executive superintendent for the Bronx. Porter will become the first black woman chancellor of the nation's largest public school system when she officially takes over March 15th. The mayor made the announcement at his briefing today. And it's a bittersweet moment, and someone I admire so much, our chancellor. And we have been through it all together. I think that's a fair statement. Yes, sir. Uh, To keep providing leadership for our families and our kids, but I also know it took a toll. And we're going to miss you, but we're going to be feeling the effects of what you've done for the kids in New York City for many years to come. I now introduce our chancellor, Richard Carranza. I came to New York City three years ago with a mission to help the Department of Education reach its full potential and, of course, to serve and to lift up all, not just some, but all of our public school children. And while the work is never done, we have created a lot of important change together. Our teachers and school staff take an equity-centered belief and approach so that our students can feel seen and heard, but most importantly, believed in. And make no mistake, I am a New Yorker. Well, not by birth, by choice. A New Yorker who has lost 11 family and close childhood friends to this pandemic. And a New Yorker who, quite frankly, needs to take time to grieve. We have stabilized the system in a way that no one thought possible. The light, my fellow New Yorkers, is truly at the end of the tunnel. And I can't think of anyone who would be better to lead this work than Misha Ross Porter. Con todo mi corazón, muchísimas gracias por la oportunidad. Mr. Mayor. And it is my honor to introduce to you the next chancellor of the New York City Public Schools, Misha Ross Porter. It's my duty and responsibility that I've carried with me my whole life to lead forward and lean in and see every student and create opportunities for them in every moment that I possibly can. And the Bronx, well, you know me. I've dedicated my life to service in the Bronx. At the end of the day, it's about the tireless dedication we have to every student, every step of the way. Primarily, as chancellor, my job will be to remove the barriers, to direct resources where they are needed most, and communicate clearly around our shared goals and commitments. It won't be easy, but I clearly, I've never done anything easy. And that is Mayor de Blasio, former Chancellor Richard Carranza, and his replacement, Maisha Porter, New York's first black schools chancellor. And NASA's Perseverance rover has landed in a rich scientific hunting ground. If its first good look around is any guide, the car-sized Perseverance landed on the floor of Jezero Crater on February 18th, kicking off an ambitious surface mission that will hunt for signs of ancient Mars life and collect samples for future return to Earth. The 28-mile-wide Jezero Crater harbored a deep lake and a river delta billions of years ago. Deltas are good at preserving signs of life here on Earth, so the Perseverance team is eager for the rover to study and sample the remnants of that feature within Jezero. And the delta is visible in the panorama that was just sent down, one of the first panoramas sent down by the uh, rover, which is now sitting safely in that Martian crater. It shows the cliffs that mark its edge about 
1.2 miles from the Perseverance landing site. But despite all the scientific and technical advances being demonstrated, anti-nuclear activist Carl Grossman says there's a problem with the Perseverance rover. It carries 10 pounds of plutonium, a man-made element used in atom bombs and nuclear power plants and forms of which are used to generate electricity, in this case 100 watts of electricity. That's all it takes, the light, the light bulb of uh, the equivalent of one old-fashioned light bulb like President Trump liked to use before we brought in these new types of light bulbs that everybody uses that only use a handful of watts. That shows you how efficient this device is. But the plutonium that produces the electricity, that could be dangerous, especially if there had been an accident and it had vaporized into the atmosphere, let's say, in an explosion of a spacecraft as happened the other day. We watched with the Tesla spacecraft. With all those dangers in mind, Carl Grossman, the anti-nuclear activist, says we should be cautious about humankind's first steps into the unknown. Plutonium is a man-made substance, and uh, it's used in atomic bombs, and it's the trigger in the hydrogen bomb. What it's being used for, well, on this particular Mars rover, is to generate electricity, a very modest amount, 100 watts. I mean, like what a light bulb is rated for, uh, that electricity could be generated by, I mean, there's been a, a whole series of Mars rovers using solar power, photovoltaic panels. NASA is very committed to the use of nuclear power in space. And so it went with this plutonium-238 as a fuel in what's called a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. I mean, what's wrong with uh, with that? Uh, and in regards to the spacecraft, I mean, what's it's, we're sending it to another planet. What's the problem with that? Plutonium is considered the most lethal radioactive substance. A millionth of a gram, a millionth of a gram, can be a fatal dose. The issue with plutonium is if it vaporizes, becomes dust, and one breathes in plutonium again, a millionth of a gram, a fatal dose. The problem here involves many steps along the way. For example, in terms of a launch, here you have over 10 pounds of plutonium on this Perseverance rover. And when you have launches of rockets, one out of 100 undergo major malfunctions on launch, I mean, mainly by blowing up. So if, uh, if this particular rocket, it was an Atlas rocket, had blown up on launch, Plutonium could have, uh, well, been dispersed all over an area, big area of Florida, leaving people, those who breathe in the dust in particular, dead with cancer. And in terms of the likelihood, the chances of a uh, plutonium release during this mission, what NASA says in its supplementary environmental impact statement for the Perseverance launch is one in 960 odds. In other words, it could happen one out of 960 times. But big money lotteries have odds much, much higher than that. People win all the time, breaking up as it hit the atmosphere, raining plutonium down all over the Earth. Are you against the space program, uh, just like rain it in, uh, who uh, we should we have all these problems on Earth. We're just like rooting around a wall of rock in space and uh, the discoveries aren't worth the expense and the risk. Not exactly, but I uh -huh. would say that the point that we got plenty of problems on Earth uh, in terms of health, particularly now with the uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and in housing and in education and so forth, to put $3.7 billion 
into this plutonium uh, mission, this this uh, uh, Perseverance rover mission, $3.7 billion. you got to ask, I mean, uh, do we have higher priorities? And if NASA wants to explore space safely, and that would be using solar power, for the, as they've done through the years, for rovers, you know, that's fine, and, and discover life, that's fine and dandy, but to destroy life on Earth, Life on Earth has to be valued at the highest level. Great if we can find some life that might have existed on Mars, but can't kill people on Earth and other forms of life to uh, go uh, exploring on Mars. And that's Carl Grossman. He's an author, TV program host, and full professor of journalism at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury. And after this, I'm going to read it. And finally, we're going to stay on, and I'm giving the message to folks who are texting me that uh, I will happily take calls after this. And finally, the daughter of deceased former NYPD officer is speaking out about a letter that purports to show that her father was involved with the assassination of civil rights leader Malcolm X. The letter released last weekend is said to be written by Raymond Wood. In it, he alleges the FBI and NYPD conspired to assist with the assassination, cover up details about it, and undermine the civil rights movement. In an exclusive interview with New York One, Wood's daughter, Kelly, said the letter is forged. She said her cousin, Reggie Wood, who read the letter aloud at a news conference on February 20th, just wanted attention for himself and a book he's working on. I know that my father did not write this letter, Woods told NY1's Dean Memminger. I know that it's not his signature, and I know the envelope they're using to somehow justify that the letter was mailed is also a fake. In the purported letter, the officer confesses that he played a part in the arrest of two members of Malcolm X's security team just before the shooting and that Thomas Johnson, who died in 2009, was wrongly convicted for the murder. The story, all these decades later, continues. And that's some of the news for Friday, February 26, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City for the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. 